You're in the water loop. Hi, this is Travis with Waterloop. Water conservation is very important to me, and I bet it is to all of you. That's why I use High Sierra shower heads in my house, and I'm so happy to have them as a supporter of this podcast. High Sierra carries the EPA WaterSense label for efficiency and uses 40% less water than conventional low flow shower heads. 40%. The model I have uses just a gallon and a half per minute. And because of their unique nozzle design, it's patented. Nobody else has it. It maximizes efficiency of water and energy use, but doesn't sacrifice on performance. You still get a powerful shower. Use promo code WATERLOOP for 20% off at HighSierraShowerHeads.com. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. I am thrilled to be talking about oysters for this episode. I've, I've been waiting and, and looking for the right person to have on, and I am happy to be joined by Chris Moore. He is Senior Scientist at the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Chris, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, like I said, I've been, I've been wanting to talk about oysters for a while. I, uh, I think they're incredible. I think they're underrated, underutilized when it comes to, uh, to water quality out there. And I know they've got an incredible history in the Chesapeake Bay uh, from what they began, the kind of levels they were a long time ago when, when the bay was first being explored by Captain John Smith and to what they are now, which is a big decline. But could you talk a little bit about that history of oysters in the Chesapeake Bay and, and its tributaries? Sure. So Chesapeake Bay really in, in some ways was unfortunately kind of the second area to get fished out of on the Atlantic coast. You know, a, a lot of people think about oysters kind of like you referred to historically when Captain John Smith sailed in. And, you know, we heard stories of oysters as big as dinner plates. And we heard about basically uh, almost like sandbars of oysters. There were navigational hazards out in there. And that's probably very true. Um, but I, one of the things I think is most interesting about kind of the history part of oysters is the fact that uh, we actually fished our New England stocks of oysters out first. And those watermen and, and uh, folks who wanted to harvest oysters actually started to move to the Chesapeake Bay. So, so the New England fleets came in, and that's when we got into that really unique time about the oyster wars that people hear a lot about. <laughs> and, uh, you know, these big sailing fleets that came in and, and, and started to disrupt the local economies that were harvesting oysters and things like that. And at the time, we were harvesting on the order of five to six million bushels of oysters year. Just absolutely incredible. When was this? Oysters. This was late 1800s into the early 1900s. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you just had hundreds and hundreds of, of skipjacks. Um, those were the larger sailing vessels that would harvest oysters with dredges uh, during the winter and things like that. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it must have just been awesome to see all of those oyster boats out there and things like that. Uh, the flip side of that is it was a very tough industry, as you can imagine, during that time. You know, we didn't have the, the weather uh, <laughs> forecast like we did today. So, you know, lots of boats were lost. Uh, there's even reports about how at the end of the oyster season, uh, in some cases, the the, uh, the boat captains would just basically abandon the crew, sometimes at sea. Uh, it really, really was a, a tough time to be someone who, who actually fished for oysters. But 
there were so many oysters being harvested. They were used for all these different sources. I mean, there are places like Crisfield, Maryland, where they basically built land on top of oyster shells. And then oyster shells were used in the construction of homes, constructions of roads, all, all sorts of uses, because in a lot of ways, people thought that that resource was so abundant that we'd never run out of it. And it wasn't long before we started to run out of that. By about the 1920s, 1930s, um, we, we started to learn that this resource was not unlimited. And so oyster population started to drop off uh, about that time. And it wasn't too long after that that we started to do kind of the first fisheries management in terms of putting oyster shell back and having some closures and things like that, because what most people don't realize and what they were just beginning to realize back then was the best habitat for oyster is other oysters. And so by taking the oyster out and taking the shell out, uh, you're, you're taking that habitat away. And the oysters grow best when they can grow in those kind of clumps that we think about on top of one another, all craggly and things like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's not only great oyster habitat, um, but it's also great habitat for a whole host of other species as well. You know, whether it's blue crabs or whether it's mud crabs, some of the worms you see there, feather blennies, things like that. Um, really, oysters are the coral reefs of our ecosystems here in the mid-Atlantic is what it amounts to. And so after applying some fisheries management, um, you saw oysters begin to, to rebound a little bit, at least stay steady in terms of the status of the stock. And in the Chesapeake Bay region, we had one of our first diseases show up, uh, MSX, which is a parasitic disease. We don't know exactly how that got here. Um, we think it may have come from a failed introduction of a Pacific oyster uh, at the time. And some people were playing with this. So that's a, it's a great example of you know, releasing non-native species. You never know exactly what the outcome may be. But that, that really first decimated uh, our oyster stocks beyond what we've done harvest-wise. And then you, if you look at the, the harvest charts, at least, you'll see that oysters started to rebound a little bit. You know, natural selection um, allowed the oysters to, to begin to develop some natural resistance to that disease. And then we had dermo come in. And dermo, another parasitic disease, very, very similar to MSX. Uh, we probably had some different types of dermo in the Chesapeake Bay region. But we think we brought in some more lethal strains of that disease by doing what we call dip and ship. And that what that basically meant is we were harvesting oysters in the Gulf of Mexico and other places. We were bringing them up and putting them in Chesapeake Bay waters for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, and then selling them as Chesapeake Bay oysters. Uh, Chesapeake Bay oysters were the, you know, the, the, the real brand that people wanted. And so then we really saw oyster populations fall off after that. And uh, I think most people would tell you we hit we hit rock bottom sometime in the in in the early to mid nineties is what it amounts to. Um, since that time, I, I would say we generally have been on a on an upswing. It's not perfect, you know, with with any biological critter. Um, you know, the oysters obviously look a lot more like a rock to most people, but um, they are a really unique individual there. Um, uh, you know, some years we have really good reproduction and see more oysters come back. Some years. Not so much. Obviously, we have a fishery as well that affects the population, but um, we, we have kind of seen a, a, at least uh, some rebound in the stocks, especially in Virginia, um, since the early 2000s. And now we we are harvesting somewhere in the order of about about 600,000 bushels in Virginia, 
about 400,000 bushels in Maryland per year. So um, there, there's, there's definitely been some resurgence there. So about a million bushels coming out of that bay now. Uh, right. Does that include that includes the tribs? Because I know they're getting some out of those. Different that includes rivers. The tribs as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then the uh, the big big change that we're seeing over the last ten to fifteen years or so is the use of, of of more intensive aquaculture methods to grow oysters. And and in fact, here in Virginia, our aquaculture raised oysters are actually surpassing the harvest of our wild caught oysters. And so. Um, it's good to see because that's investment in in our bay resource, our bay region that we're seeing from aquaculture. The other thing, and you touched on this a little bit earlier, I think, is the water quality aspect. You know, oysters are great filters. There's some other things that they do to help improve water quality as well. And, you know, even if an oyster goes in the water for you know, 14, 16 months, maybe two years, um, it's filtering that whole time, hmm. and uh, it, that's helping water quality. And, and a, not everything would happen on a naturally occurring oyster reef, but a lot of the things that happen on an oyster reef are going to happen in the aquaculture system as well. So we're getting some of those benefits from oysters um, in aquaculture as well. And, and that's one reason a lot of organizations like CBF have really su- tried to support the growth of smart aquaculture because there's a economic benefit to it. And there's also obviously an ecological benefit to it as well. So the the aquaculture, this is like putting in cages off the side of piers, or how exactly is, is that right? Or is there a different way they go about doing yeah, aquaculture? There's, there's two kind of ways that we do it. And, and the Chesapeake Bay, both Maryland and Virginia are kind of unique to this. Uh, there's what we tend to call historic um, extensive aquaculture in most cases. And, and then they do a couple things there. Uh, they might just simply put spat, uh, on shell down um, across the bottom. Um, historically, instead of doing that, what they would just do is they would either just put shell down to catch uh, young oysters, which we call spat. Those are juvenile oysters before they attach, or right after they attach, basically. Or they would move oyster seed from areas that have lots and lots of, of reproduction, like the James River, Yankee Tank River, to, and then grow those oysters out. And so that was kind of the historical way to do it. Nowadays, is kind of what you were thinking of, where they're growing oysters in cages or, or some sort of enclosure to protect them from, from predators and things like mm-hmm. that, but also so they can manage them, you know, very quickly and spread things out. You know, just like any animal that you raise, you've got some real fast growers in, in, in a group, you've got some, some slow middle ones, and you've got some runts that are, that are really slow, but that actually helps in aquaculture because one of the great things about aquaculture is you have a product that's available 12 months out of the year now. You know, we used to always think about oysters only being good during the R months, and there's some reasons for that. Um, but there, we've been able to overcome a number of those reasons as well. At this point. But you know, an aquaculturist wants to basically be able to sell the oyster 12 months out of the year. And so they have to do a lot of work to manage their crop and in order to make sure they've got you know, market-ready oysters throughout the 12 months of the year. Always something special about the fall oyster roast, though, you know, those are good times. That's right, <laughs> yeah. For, and and for, for wild oysters, that really is important. You know, one of the reasons, obviously, for the R-month thing historically was the fact that we didn't have refrigeration. And oysters, kind of like blue crabs, you don't really need to refrigerate them. You know, in the cold months, um, they're, they're fine. Uh, oysters are, are basically intertidal animal, animals, so... They can be out of the water for, for a couple of hours to a couple of days with no problem whatsoever. But obviously, in the heat of the summer, shipping that, that very 
perishable food product doesn't work very well. So that was kind of one of the reasons for the R month. The, the other reason for that historically was the fact that oysters are reproducing during the summer months. Uh, once the water temps get up to about 70 degrees, they're starting to reproduce and things like that. And that is a very energy intensive process for oysters. And so the oysters tend to lose their fat reserves. They put you know, lots and lots of energy into reproduction and they become kind of watery and not that thick, plump oyster that we think about eating in November and December at, at an oyster roast. And so that's another reason for the R month piece. So you mentioned that there's been some rebound. I mean, I remember when I was at the Chesapeake Bay program, it was like 1% of the historic high. Now that historic right. high is a lot, right? Back back, yeah, back right. in the day. So it's hard to probably creep up on that. But is it, if it's a percent, is it still down around that? Or is it ticked it's up a little? It's still or? a fraction of the historical yeah. level. We know that. Um, but what we have seen is, you know, areas where we have worked hard and really focused our restoration efforts, we're definitely seeing a rebound is yeah. what it amounts to. And we can see that in the data that scientists are out collecting every year on oysters. And so that's that's really the way that oyster restoration, and, and you mentioned me at the day program, has really moved. Uh, we basically have a new goal that uh, was developed a couple of years ago that set out to restore 10 tributaries, uh, five in Maryland, five in Virginia. And what we had been kind of realizing with our oyster restoration, because it's a new science, it's still evolving. We're still learning a lot um, every year about oyster restoration techniques and what works, what doesn't work. But, you know, our, our oyster restoration efforts, although very well intended, they've been a little spread out and kind of all over the place and things like that. And so what was realized is that we needed to move to what we call tributary scale restoration. So let's pick some tributaries or even in some cases some parts of some tributaries and let's really do real intensive oyster restoration in those tributaries and then after we finish one move to another and that has been i think much more successful in terms of making sure we have an impact um in in each state than the the efforts which although very well intended were just a bit spread out considering the fact that we were so low overall in our oyster population how much of the the restoration progress is really you know driven or dependent on state decisions? You know, Maryland, Virginia needing to say, "Hey, here's what the policies are going to be for harvesting," and and here we're setting this aside area for this and that. You know, how much? Yeah, yeah there, there's a, a number of different ways the states are really helpful. Uh, kind of kind of what you talked about there in terms of setting aside areas. You know, we we obviously both states have harvest areas some of those wild harvest areas uh, that have been out there for, for a very long time. Um, also, both states have an aquaculture industry, and that takes bottom away as well. And we talk about bottom a lot of times in the oyster world. We're just talking about acreage, uh, you know, on the either the, the bay bottom or in the tributaries. Um, so you've got to manage those uses as well. And then, you know, in a lot of cases, what you do is make sure your restoration happens in areas that won't conflict with those other uses. But you also want to do it in areas where hopefully it can help um, the wild fishery in some cases, or it can help other uh, other things. One of the things we're doing more and more when it comes to oyster restoration is we're trying to do oyster restoration in some cases where it can have a positive effect on climate change. You know, so protecting infrastructure on land by building reefs because remember oysters are under tidal, so they can help do that. Um, they can help protect salt marshes. Uh, wetlands that uh, that help obviously reduce wave energy and help uh, catch those floodwaters. So that's another area that we're seeing more and more restoration efforts going into. 
So being strategic yeah. then about where these are yeah. put in so that they you've got those benefits of, of protecting the land. That's awesome. Exactly. Um, yeah, go ahead. The, the, the other area that the states are really important in is, is funding these oyster restoration efforts. <laughs> um, oyster restoration is, is admittedly, it's not a, a, a real cheap endeavor. There's a lot of work that goes on. And so uh, Maryland and Virginia both um, have, have worked hard. And a lot of times it's in partnership with uh, NOAA, the Chesapeake Bay Program, the Army Corps of Engineers. Um, but, but doing these large scale, what, what I referred to earlier as tributary scale restoration efforts, uh, it, it takes a, a fair amount of resources, and so states have been very good at pulling the, those things together as well to make sure we have the funding and the other resources in place to have successful projects. What are what are maybe uh, in CBF's mind some needed policy changes that could help oyster restoration be more successful? So uh, continuing to find areas where we, we can balance those user conflicts, uh, that's that's going to be one of the biggest things that we need in, in terms of kind of moving forward is the fact that um, you have aquaculture folks who, who want to use areas. You obviously have the wild fishery that um, uh, wants to continue to participate as well. Um, finding uh, good areas so that restoration can take place and be beneficial mm. to those other, other industries is going to, to be one area that we'll, where we need you know good policies in the future. Uh, another area that's emerged a little bit too is user conflicts with waterfront homeowners and, and folks like that. Um, and, and that really, in some ways, is something that, that's disappointing from the fact that you know some, some folks in the scientific world use that regime change, regime shift terminology. And people don't realize, kind of like you referred to earlier, that you know, we are at a fraction of what the oyster population look like, and therefore we need to do a lot of restoration. And, and most people today think of a tributary's, you know, bottom or the Chesapeake Bay bottom mm. as being pretty flat and not having a lot of diversity to it. And really what should be out there is not a flat bottom, but, you know, these undulations, these three-dimensional oyster reefs that maybe create some navigational hazards at time, but also create tremendous diversity in the resource, you know, that provides home for lots of different fish, for lots of different shellfish, uh, things also like underwater grasses and, and anemones and things like that, um, but also creates habitat and other type of uses. You know, you think about folks who were paddling around, it was out in the water today, fortunately, and, you know, you, you watch folks, uh, watch the birds that are feeding on intertidal oyster reefs as well. Uh, my favorite part of oyster reefs, besides oysters and things like that, is the fish that I catch on on and around them. So they provide a, a whole lot of additional benefits as well. And that's one of the things we're really uh, putting a lot of, of thought into and some resources into is trying to make sure that people uh, understand where these reefs are going, why they're going there, and, and trying to reduce kind of the, the user conflicts um, that we may have in some of these situations. Oh man, people people are fortunate enough to have a waterfront home and a waterfront piece of property. They love the view, they love the water, and, and it's like, hey, this is what's going to make it even better. This is better, this is right. what we need, right? Yeah. Um, I was wondering also if you could touch on that. We we touched on it a couple times the filtration 
power of oysters, which is again one of my my favorite things. Like I remember hearing so many great statistics about you know when the bay was full of oysters, it turned the whole bay over in twenty four hours or something. Uh, yeah, uh, so, somewhere between that and, and about a week, I think is probably uh, okay. a little more realistic. Okay, it's, okay, it's been a few days. Right. Yeah. So, but yeah, could you talk about how uh, just their filtering power and capacity and and yeah, sure. So. You know the the statistic that I think is most commonly used, which is which is a really good statistic, is that a adult oyster can filter up to fifty gallons of water a day. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you think about the fact that you know, the the bay should have billions of oysters in it. Uh, that that is some tremendous filtering capacity. You know, for the way I kind of describe it, to to get people to to be able to think about it on a term they can relate to is, and I think you mentioned uh, a little bit earlier what we sometimes refer to as oyster garden, where people grow oysters in cages or floats uh, on their pier or dock, or maybe at their boat slip. In a lot of cases, they're growing 750 to a thousand oysters uh, in those, those floats or those cages or whatever, whatever system they're using. So if you just multiply, you know, that thousand oysters by 50 gallons a day, um, like they might be doing during the summertime, um, you start to get some, some really big numbers. Yeah. So that's important. Um, another part of the, the water quality benefits of oyster reefs is uh, the fact that, you know, they break wave energy. They, they help keep sediment on the bottom. Uh, there's lots of other organisms that tend to be on an oyster reef like mussels that actually, by, by weight or by volume, actually filter even faster than oysters. So you're, you're building this very diverse community that helps with, with water quality in, in lots of different ways. And then uh, another part that people don't realize, um, and is, is really, it, it is the most complex part about it, but on an oyster reef, you've got all these different things going on, uh, biogeochemical processes, basically. You know, the oysters are, are eating, so there's obviously things coming out of the back end of an oyster. That gets put down on the reef, and then there's other things like the worms we talked about and other organisms, and there's bacteria in there. And what that actually does is uh, starts to help a process start denitrification. And that's basically creating nitrogen gas. It's taking nitrogen that's in the water and allowing it to, to, to be expelled in the atmosphere. And obviously, uh, you know, we know that the, uh, the amount of nitrogen in the atmosphere is, is extremely large, but nitrogen is one of the three main bay pollutants that we try to reduce. Nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment are the, the three pollutants that, um, that we continue to work on day in and day out. And you might say, are, are those really pollutants? I mean, nitrogen or phosphorus, they go in my garden or on my lawn and things like that. But they're, they're both great examples of having something in the right amount is good. You know, we've got to have nitrogen and phosphorus to create algae for, for our filter feeders, things like that. But when you have too much of it, uh, you end up with, with water quality problems. And, and this time of year, summertime, when the water's hot, you know, our winds tend to drop down a little bit, the water starts to, to kind of stratify, we end up with these harmful algal blooms um, that end up robbing the water of oxygen. Also, we have some blooms that fish and even oysters don't like to eat, so it, it can be deleterious to the oyster population as well. But um, but going back to the good side, you know, the oyster reefs have all those different processes helping um, either, either filter the water by the oysters or the other organisms that are there, by helping to break wave energy, or by um, by helping to to keep sediment on the bottom out of the water out of the water column so that you have better water clarity and, and better water quality overall. 
Sure. So I've always wondered this about oysters, and now I have someone I think I can ask about. Uh, you know, you you know about fish, and sometimes they bioaccumulate different toxins or or different you know pharmaceuticals or whatever it might be. And I've always been like, well, oysters are these big filter feeders, right? They're like cleaning the water. So are there any issues with oysters and and kind of accumulation of of stuff you wouldn't want in there? You want to, yeah. <laughs> so oysters, uh, in some ways, unfortunately, are still pretty short lived. I mean, historically, oysters lived to about 20 years old or so. But uh, now an, uh, an old oyster is still four, five, six years old as, a, as an old oyster. And that's part of that disease pressure. Part of it is, is just other stresses out there in the environment, like really high water temps at times, things like that. But um, fortunately, they don't tend to accumulate lots of things like toxic and heavy metals, like we think about as kind of the nasties and you know, large old fish, mm. you know, like large old striped bass or sometimes we think about that and tuna and things like that. Um, the, the issue that we tend to get into with oysters is they can a lot of times uh, basically bioaccumulate fecal bacteria, mm. uh, which comes from, you know, animal waste, human waste, things like that. And, and they can kind of biomagnify that. And one of the the ways that we really, really are, are, are doing a good job testing for that is is any state that harvests oysters. Uh, they have something either called their division of shellfish sanitation or something very close to that. And they actually go out and they have to sample monthly and in some cases, maybe even more than monthly um, in order to make sure that the oysters and the, the, that are growing in that water, the water quality is good enough to support that. And one of the things that people's eyes always open up when I tell them about this program is that the um, the water quality standard for shellfish growing water, so where we can harvest oysters from, is much, much, much more stringent than the swimming. Oh, so if there if you can harvest oysters from it, you know you can swim in it, and, and it's in it, it's in, it's a really good quality uh, water. And and we're doing some some kind of unique things with that as well now. Like I'm sitting here today on the shores of the Lindhaven River, and uh, they tested that water a lot over the uh, last you know, five to 10 years, because this is a real success story in the sense that if you go back to 2005, only 1% of this river was open to shellfish harvest. And so we really had no oyster industry at all. And now around 45% of the river's open, and we have somewhere around 12 to 15 oyster companies actually working, which is a great story in itself. But one of the things they have also done is they've tested the water enough that they know, okay, if we have a half-inch rainfall, we're going to close the waters for 10 days. So we're not going to harvest oysters for 10 days. And then once that's over with, we'll go right back. So that allows the aquaculture companies some certainty so that they say, okay, these areas, I know that if I get a big rainfall, I'm not going to be able to harvest oysters there. So I also need to keep some oysters in other places so that I can continue to provide oysters to my market and things like that. So we're using what we continue to learn about in terms of, of how oysters accumulate some of those, uh, not necessarily toxins, fecal coliforms and things like that. The one make sure that we have certainty for our businesses, but we can also keep the public safe in terms of, of eating oysters. Because that's, you know, anytime you have a, a seafood product where people end up getting sick from it, it it's not a good thing. And uh, there's actually incredible traceability in the oyster industry in terms of where oysters come from. Believe it or not, whenever you harvest an oyster, um, they're they're put in in bags or sacks depending on where you're at. Uh, sometimes bushels, but there's actually uh, a traceability tag that goes with those oysters all the way to the end user. And so, 
know, in the, in the few unfortunate cases where people do get sick, they can actually trace that back um, to the areas. And then, you know, areas that you talked about a little bit about toxics, heavy metals, they, they do a good job closing those uh, because of the fact that, you know, we, we know where those areas are. They tend to be the old industrial areas. Think about Ultra Point or Point, Elizabeth River. A lot of those areas have been closed for years in order to, to make sure there was no public health detriment. To, All right. To, well, I'm so glad I got a. I'm so glad I got to talk to somebody about that <laughs> question that's been in my mind for a while, and I've wondered about. Um, you know, I I live in Wilmington, North Carolina now, and so there's you know good local oysters around the, the Carolina coast. Right. And I'm I'm assuming that they have the same kind of general protocol and approach with management there. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the shellfish standards are, are pretty are, are pretty similar throughout the U.S. Um, there's some some international shellfish standards as well. But um, yeah, because the product shipped everywhere. You know, your oysters that are harvested in Wilmington may come up here to Virginia. Uh, they're vice versa. Um, so they they want generally the, the same thing to happen. And that's been actually one of the one of the most exciting things for me about oysters is we've gotten to the point, especially with aquaculture expanding that it's almost like wine, you know, people are getting really cool, unique names for oysters, you know, and, uh, and you go to oyster bars now and they'll have three different oysters from three from Maryland and three from North Carolina. You can sit, sit down and eat those different oysters and compare them and things like that. And, uh, it's, it's great for the growers. I think it's great that the oyster industry is coming back and it's getting this unique, uh, you know, kind of nomenclature to it and things like that. I, I'm not sure I always agree with all the different things about buttery and things like that about the oysters. You know, I, I, I tend to be, if it's salty or not salty and things like that. But you can really taste a difference, you know, from the waters that they were grown in, in, in the flavor of the oyster, the saltiness of the oyster. And then of course, uh, depending upon if it was a wild harvest oyster or an aquaculture oyster, they a lot of times will grow a lot different. Um, you know, you're down in Wilmington, um, a lot of the natural oysters are down there, and we have some of these in the James River and on the seaside of the eastern shore as well. We kind of refer to as snappy oysters. You know, they're kind of elongated oysters, mm-hmm. and uh, they'll sometimes snap. We call them snappy because they'll break off because they kind of grow thin shells because they're kind of growing up in the water column very quickly to get their food. Uh, other places will grow a, a more rounded type oyster with a real thick shell, especially the areas that are a little bit fresher where it takes the oyster longer to grow. Um I mentioned the Lynn Haven here, you know, we grow in, in generally a kind of rounded oyster, but almost has a golden shell to it. And uh, that's actually one of the reasons uh, one of our restoration vessels here at CBF is called Chesapeake Gold. Because those kind of salty oysters have almost a, a golden color to them. And then when it goes to aquaculture now, they're doing all sorts of really neat things to have a real high-end product. They're shaking oysters um, sometimes seven, eight times in order to get that nice rounded edge to them, that nice cup to them. Uh, they're sometimes putting them up in the air to make sure nothing else is growing on them, like mussels, barnacles, things like that. Uh, some folks are growing in cage systems where they actually come out of the water twice a day with the low tides, and they get moved around by, by the winds because they're just under the surface. So there's all sorts of, of neat things uh, happening in the oyster world today, especially aquaculture, that are delivering much different products out there to the restaurants and to the buyers and uh, people are again kind of like wine they're they're becoming oyster connoisseurs in, in lots of different ways i remember seeing stories over the past bunch of years about the resurgence of oysters in the in the bay and those tributaries that you've mentioned and you know that 
yes, people are seeking out these, they're going up to New York City or they're being shipped off wherever, you know, and they're gaining notoriety for uh, mm -hmm. being from this tributary or the Chesapeake Bay or whatever it might be. And so it's it's all these different factors that give those different flavors, allegedly, uh, you know, what's the salinity of the water? How much do they get exposed? Are they not? All, all that yeah, kind yeah. of stuff factors in the taste, huh? Yeah, it does. Yeah. The, the salinity is obviously what most people think about. I mean, that's that's the big one. And it does make a huge difference. You know, and you, you can go up to Chesapeake Bay and get uh, it, I think most people will consider four different salinity zones of oysters. And those oysters all take a uh, it taste much, much different depending on where they are. But but you're exactly right. Are they grown on the sandy bottom? Are they grown on the muddy bottom? Uh, will, will make a difference. Um, is it you know, is it an area um, where maybe there's a lot of freshwater inputs? parts of the year or, or things like that. Um, things, things definitely make a difference in the, in the taste and the, and the flavor of, of the oyster. And then again, um, the culture method in terms of, of what was done to it makes a big difference. Uh, some, some oysters I actually bought, uh, last winter, which was kind of neat, was actually a commercial waterman who was buying oysters from the James river, uh, that were wild harvest. And then he was, he was basically kind of like I talked about earlier, dipping them. He was he was putting them out here in the Lynn Haven for about a about a month or two and then selling them. And uh, it was really a neat oyster to buy because it had the thick shell. It was nice and easy to shut like a wild oyster. But it started to have that nice salinity and uh, uh, flavor to it from a, a little bit saltier oyster. Because a, a fair number of the James River oysters are, are, are pretty, pretty on, on the freshwater side. So this was a, a way, again, to, to do something else. So the, the, the waterman, in this case, can, can make some extra money by, by basically dipping those oysters and selling them a little bit well. But it also made for a very unique product because you had something that was partly wild harvest, but also partly aquaculture as well. Wow. Getting sophisticated. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Last thing I wanted to ask you about, and I saw an article very recently about this, was the Chesapeake Bay Foundation's kind of new mobile restoration unit that you all right. have put together to try to to try to work on the oysters. What do you all hope to do with that? I know it's kind of just recently been put out there, and you're you're seeing how it goes. Yeah, so this was a, a, a an idea that we worked on partly because. Um, we know we're going to be working in different tributaries over the years to restore oysters. And so I, I talked a little bit earlier about the fact that there's five tributaries to restore in Virginia and, and five in Maryland. And for a number of years, our Oyster Restoration Center uh, here in Virginia had always been at the Virginia Institute of Marine Science up in Gloucester Point. Um, great setup. We actually worked great with all the scientists there and the staff there. We were always trading ideas and, and things like that. Um, we, and we had a have a nice footprint there to work and and things like that. But it was located, you know, about an hour, hour and a half away. Uh, if anyone's familiar with Hampton Roads, you know how bad our tunnel traffic is. Uh, and most of our restoration work was going on here in Southside Hampton Roads. And so it, it really was resource intensive to have the base of our operations uh, an hour to an hour and a half away from where we were doing our restoration work. And so. Um, as we were thinking about redoing this, uh, we were fortunate enough also to build a new environmental center here in Hampton Roads called the Brock Environmental Center. And we were trying to co-locate more of our program. So how do we do this and uh, make this move on things like that? And so we came up with the idea um, for what we call the mobile setting unit. And basically it is putting uh, really big tanks um, on barges. And, and the way we, that we finally built this is we actually built two barges that are completely identical. Um, they're what we call pin barges. They pin together. 
but we can use them in tandem or we can split them off and use them in different areas. And kind of like a boat, um, you can have it plugged in um, to power and things like that and run it for the shore. Or actually right now, one of them is running completely on its own on diesel power on a generator, just like you would use a boat uh, to do. So some of the advantages, one, is we're a lot more mobile with where we can do that. The other thing is the oysters that we're setting there um, also are, are close by to where they're going to go uh, for their for the restoration part of their life cycle. So, uh, you know, the water that's being pumped through the tanks right now is the same salinity, the same temperature, things like that, that they're going to, to experience once they go on to the restoration site. You know, uh, oysters in some way are kind of like humans. You know, we don't like to go from, you know, uh, uh, 80 degrees into a 50 degree bath or salinity wise, kind of the same thing. You know, if you're down here in Hampton Roads and your salinities are up around 22 uh, parts per thousand, uh, oysters don't want to go into areas that are a lot higher or a lot lower. And so this way, we're really giving the oysters the best chance of being successful to put the restoration. We put them out on a restoration site. So, um so the, the mobile setting units are, are giving us increased efficiency. Um, in addition, they're a great learning platform. We can do tours on those so people can come out and see, see them. Um, but like I say, we think the product that we get, we'll get out of them will be better. The other thing that we're really excited about with those is, is being able to continue to partner with industry um, and set oysters for them and work with them so that they can continue to flourish. Uh, one of the, the big issues is uh, setting space for oysters and when i say setting space what that basically means is we have lots of hatcheries popping up um, uh, along the atlantic coast and what they do is they tend to produce oyster larvae and uh, getting into the life cycle of oysters a little bit for about the first two to three weeks of their life oysters are, are what we call larvae that kind of float around um, in the currents and things like that and after about three weeks, they develop a, a, a real low-tech eye, and they become what are called eye larvae. And they look for a place to set down and start to form their shell. And once they set, uh, they'll never move the rest of their life unless, they're, of course, they're moved by, by humans or wave action or something like that. And so what we're doing with our system, we're basically buying the larvae. We're setting them on recycled oyster shell or on things like reef balls or other materials. And then once they set, which only really takes a, about 10 days or so, we can actually move those out to the restoration site. And uh, that's what we're doing with our mobile setting unit. We're really excited, one, to have that new flexibility with it. But we're also really excited to see how it works when we're, when we're growing the oysters so close to where their, their restoration home is. Sure. That's awesome. Can't wait to follow that and see how it goes in the, in the years ahead for sure. Yeah. Well, Chris, I really, really appreciate all the information. Thank you for making me hungry. Uh, <laughs> I got, I feel like I got to go on a, go out tonight and find some more oysters, but um, yeah, thank you so much for your time and the information. I appreciate it a ton. No problem. Thank you for having me. And, and I hope folks will go out and enjoy some oysters. Um, like you said, and also, you know, think about when they see oysters when they're out in the water now, the other values that they have as well. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thanks. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. The Waterloop podcast is brought to you by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart and stylish way to save water, energy, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Use promo code Waterloop for 20% off at highsierrashowerheads.com. You're in the Waterloop. <laughs> Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.